0: Hey, you're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. I'm Gregory Warner. I'm jumping back into your feed today to bring you an episode of Throughline, NPR's history podcast, produced right down the hall here. And this is actually their third episode about Iran. And this one looks at the life of Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian military leader who was assassinated last month in a drone strike in Baghdad, and whose death continues to reshape the Middle East. We wanted to air this episode, well, first, because it's full of voices and perspectives that we rarely hear on Iran, but also because it made me think about an experience I had visiting Iran as a journalist years ago. This was before I was on staff at NPR. I was freelancing in Afghanistan. And so I flew from Kabul, not to the capital, Tehran, but to a smaller city in the east. And then I traveled by land to the capital. And because of this uncommon route, or maybe because of some oversight by Iranian bureaucrats I never found out, for the two days it took me to get to the capital, I ended up being in the country without a government minder. And this experience of being an American in Iran, apparently unmonitored, was to discover how willing people were to show me a side of themselves that they might have had to hide from a neighbor. Like I remember this one time, a shopkeeper, I guess he heard my accent, he went into the back room and returned very happily with two teacups of moonshine. The punishment for alcohol consumption in Iran, I looked it up later, it is technically 80 lashes or a really, really hefty bribe. But there was this guy and, you know, cheers. Another night, I remember it was Friday evening, I found myself in an underground synagogue attending Shabbat services. There were about five people in a room full of carpets, a single, tattered Torah. It seemed like people were almost going out of their way to show me that despite the strict religious rules of the country, they were finding ways to live their lives. But the other experience I remember from that trip was visiting the city of Shiraz on a day that happened to be the birthday of the 13th century Persian poet Saadi. If you don't know Saadi, you've probably seen his poetry on motivational posters. He is the guy who wrote, Have patience, all things are difficult before they are easy. But in Iran, Saadi is also the poet who lived at a time when Persia was under attack. It had lost a lot of territory, and in his verses, he longed for the glory days of the Persian Empire. And so now, here I was, 700 plus years after his death, at his gravesite, which was thronged with Young Iranians standing together, quoting his romantic poetry by heart, of course, and looking at this crowd in their bomber jackets and colorful headscarves, it didn't feel like a stretch to say these were the same Iranians who bristled against clerical control over their lives. But in this moment, we're bound together by Persian culture, by Persian nationalism even. And that gets us to the subject of today's profile, Qasem Soleimani. If you've read anything about him, you know he was a terrorist. But to understand his influence, you have to know that he was also this really soft-spoken guy who could quote medieval poetry and who was able in his speeches and his words to appeal to these two sides of Iranian identity, that resentment of the clerical class and this uniting sense of Persian nationalism. And what makes this profile particularly relevant is that there was this brief period of time when Soleimani, this powerful Iranian leader, and the US government actually shared a common enemy and almost worked together. That is where Rund and Ramtin of ThruLine begin the story.
1: From I am in a situation where American 11,
2: a possible hijack. American 11 are you trying to call. The cops is not answering
0: their phone. Our number one has been stabbed and our five is. Uh, uh, listen, on an airplane that's been hijacked.
3: 456865. We have, uh, I believe it is a uh, Boeing 757. Can you see him up there, sir? That's concurred. Uh, it looks like he's rocking his way. He's dropping starting to
1: Oh my God. Oh I can hear God. you. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the
0: people
1: and the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon.
4: tragedy of that moment for those of us who paid attention to Iran, there was this glimmer of hope that both the United States and Iran are adversaries of the Taliban in Afghanistan, which was hosting al-Qaeda. So it seemed like there was this natural convergence of interests. And by all accounts, Iran played a quite constructive role in cooperating with the U.S. and Campaign to get rid of the Taliban in Afghanistan. This is Karim Sajjadpour, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment and adjunct professor at Georgetown.
3: Until 2001, Iran was boxed in; it was isolated and surrounded by enemies. On the east side, the enemy was the Taliban regime. On the western side, you know, Baghdad and, and, and Saddam Hussein's regime. The terrorist attacks of of September 11th of 2001 changed that situation completely.
5: Because the U.S. would soon go after both of Iran's enemies.
3: The Revolutionary Guard welcomed that development.
5: The Revolutionary Guard is a military arm of the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's also called the IRGC.
3: And there were secret meetings in Geneva. The IRGC intelligence officers handed over maps and exact locations of Taliban strongholds in Afghanistan to American representatives, for which American representatives were very thankful because American intelligence presence at the time in in Afghanistan was very limited. This is
2: Ali Alfone. He's a senior fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute. He's been researching the Revolutionary Guard for years, and he wrote the book on the topic called
3: uh, I, do you believe it or not? I I, I don't remember it right now. I, I don't know. <laughs> Iran unveiled. Yes, yes. Iran unveiled. You know, they, I never liked the title of the book. You know, that that's why I don't.
4: <laughs> there was this hope in the air that maybe there's it's finally an opportunity for U.S. Iran rapprochement. You know, many Iranians were were hopeful about that.
3: But the good vibes, you know, between the two changed completely when President Bush delivered his so-called Axis of Evil speech.
4: In which he put Iran, North Korea, and Iraq lumped them in as part of one axis of evil.
0: States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil,
3: arming to threaten the peace of the world.
4: That only confirmed the already very cynical worldview of Iran's hardliners that cooperation with the United States is futile.
0: The
3: Iranian side and the Revolutionary Guard, they felt betrayed. They felt they had played a constructive role in helping to get rid of the Taliban. In their own opinion, they had helped the United States. And they were rewarded by being placed in the axis of evil. At that time, the Revolutionary Guard and the political leadership in in the Islamic Republic, decided that President Bush could not be trusted and the United States was a very, very serious threat. They also believed that it was about time to impose some losses on the United States. That became reality after 2003, where where the United States uh, also invaded Iraq. Let me say this to all Iraqis who are listening. The regime is not telling the truth. There are no negotiations taking place with anyone in the Saddam Hussein's regime. There will be no outcome to this war that leaves Saddam Hussein and his regime in power. Let there be no doubt.
4: Many of the the greatest advocates of the Iraq war believe that this would be a project to democratize the entire Middle East. And that's going to immediately delegitimize the Iranian regime. It's going to delegitimize the theocracy in Iran. And so if you're Qasem Soleimani and Ayatollah Khamenei, you think to yourself, we will do everything in our power to make sure that the U.S. war in Iraq is a colossal failure.
2: A U.S. airstrike has killed Iran's most
3: important military commander.
1: The targeted killing of Major General Qasem Soleimani. I think Americans have to understand how significant a figure Soleimani was in Iran. This is the night Iran struck back... For the death of Soleimani.
5: In last night's missile launch, Iran targeted two bases that are key to U.S. operations in the region. Ukrainian passenger jet plane has crashed. Iran now admitting it shot down a Ukrainian passenger plane by mistake. You're listening to Throughline from NPR.
2: Will we go back in time.
5: To understand the present.
2: By now, you've probably heard the name Qasem Soleimani many times in the news. When he was assassinated, he suddenly became a household name in America. But for people in Iran, his name is not new. Soleimani was arguably the most important member of the Revolutionary Guard, which has been fighting direct and proxy wars in the Middle East for 40 years. It was designated a terrorist organization by the State Department in 2019. But that label doesn't capture its complexity or its immense power.
5: The Revolutionary Guard and Qasem Sunaimani embody both sides of the Islamic Republic of Iran's identity. On the one hand, they position themselves as the only power in the Muslim world resisting American imperialism. And on the other, they behave cynically and try to dominate the affairs of the Middle East at any human cost.
2: In this episode, we're gonna explore the origins of the IRGC and the story of Qasem Soleimani to understand exactly what their impact has been on the Iran-US relationship.
1: Hi, this is Mayam from Iran. Hi, I'm Aditya from Bogor, Indonesia. And you're listening to Throughline. Featured this week on Rough Translation from, from NPR. NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With Capital One, a new savings account earns five times the national average. That's five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, or maybe even an addition on that edition. Capital One is helping you earn more towards your savings goals. This is banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on
3: How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. How I Built This from NPR. Listen and share with your friends.
2: Part
4: 1, The Goat Thief.
5: This is the sound of Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, leading prayers at the funeral of Qassem
4: Soleimani.
5: After a few minutes... He breaks down and cries.
0: This
5: moment perfectly illustrates the impact of Soleimani's death. Here you have the most powerful person in the country, the Middle East's longest-running autocrat, weeping openly because one of his soldiers has died. But he wasn't just any soldier. He was the head of Iran's Al-Quds Force, which is the intelligence arm of the Revolutionary Guard, established after the Islamic Revolution in 1979, when Iran's king, the Shah, was dramatically overthrown by a mass movement supporting the cleric, Ayatollah Khomeini.
1: Ayatollah, do you know yourself whether your followers
3: are armed? They
0: have told me that they are getting prepared and I have given the permission to
1: prepare themselves. Which means getting arms? Yes. Yes.
4: The Revolutionary Guards were essentially set up in the immediate aftermath of the revolution because the Shah's military, which Ayatollah Khomeini inherited with the revolution, he was inherently mistrustful of them because he said, these are not my men, these were men who were trained by the Shah's government. And so, like most authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, they were extremely paranoid about the prospect of a coup. And for that reason, they set up this initially ragtag group of men, and they called the Guardians of the Revolution uh, to
3: be the protectors of the revolution. And even if you look at the name of the institution, the exact and word-by-word translation is the Army of the Guardians of the Islamic Revolution. In other words, the name Iran, you know, is not even mentioned in the name of the organization. And in the logo of the organization, there is, you know, a a picture of the globe, not not a map of Iran. So clearly, this group of Iranian revolutionaries perceived their own organizations as the vanguard of an internationalist uh, revolution.
1: وحدت در
3: تعریفی که او مند در برد سیاسی می شود معلو نیست اینجا بیفتد.
2: این غسم صمانیپ. اما وحد پیرامون اصول
3: یک امر حقیقی است باید بشود. مهمترین معفه که در وحد با اتفاق بیفتد، وحد حول دشمنه.
2: When he died, he was one of the most powerful and well-known people in the Middle East. But his story starts the exact opposite way it ended, in complete
3: obscurity. He was born the son of landless peasants who left school after only five years of schooling, left the village mountain of Rabor, goes to, to Kerman, and begins working as a construction worker. There is no record of Mr. Soleimani being a revolutionary activist prior to the revolution of 79. After the revolution of 79, he appears to have lo- joined the local branch of the Revolutionary Guard Corps in Kerman. At that time, uh, we are not aware of his ideological beliefs. But there is one thing that we know in the immediate aftermath of the revolution. And it is that many of them more or less lost their belief in the clerical class. They believed in Khomeini, yes, as a spiritual leader and as a leader of the revolution. But most of the other members of the clerical class, they completely distrusted. And the reason for that is that revolutionary guard officers, they were taken out and recruited to serve as personal bodyguards to the clerics. As personal bodyguards, they had to live physically under the same roof as members of the clergy. And when you live with people, you find out that not everyone wearing a cloak and a turban is a saint. You find out that someone who from the pulpit of the mosque is preaching against drinking alcohol perhaps enjoys a drink at home. Somebody who is raiding against homosexuality may be interested in handsome young men at home. So the sanctity of the clerical class completely came down crashing. So instead of being overtly anti-clerical, the IRGC officer corps, including Mr. Soleimani, they developed an ideology which mixed Shia Islam and Persian nationalism, Iranian nationalism. So in that sense, they managed to combine the two. And this combination was so unbelievably potent that it managed to mobilize millions of Iranians.
5: When Qassem Soleimani joined the Revolutionary Guards, he was very young, only in his early 20s. But he still managed to impress his commanders enough to get an important task, one that probably had an impact on him for the rest of his life.
4: One of his earliest assignments was to go quell a Kurdish rebellion in northwest Iran.
3: Because at the time, there was an anti-government uprising in Kurdistan.
4: And if you see the photographs of that rebellion, uh, they are incredibly violent. Approximately 10,000 Kurds died during that period, and I think that that was
3: his baptism
4: into that kind of
3: career. He saw terrible things with his own eyes, and perhaps he also engaged in, in acts which are uh, difficult to, to, to defend morally. But at the time, it was perceived that as a necessity uh, uh, in order to preserve the territorial integrity of Iran. Immediately after that uh, came the heroic phase of the Revolutionary God's history in Iran, and that is the, the war with Iraq. In
4: 1980,
2: Saddam Hussein invaded southwestern Iran and the Revolutionary Guard Forces were some of the first to respond. In
3: the frontline cities, Iranian troops hurried to engage the invaders. Local resistance was led by Iran's Revolutionary Guards, who were fiercely loyal to Ayatollah Khomeini.
4: What was initially this small ragtag group of men mushroomed into thousands of men.
3: They relied heavily on rifles and rocket-propelled grenades and, in sporadic engagements, exacted a heavy toll of the invading forces. From their example stemmed the Iranian mood of self-sacrifice in a holy war. Iraq, you know, in the beginning of the war, was occupying some of Iran's most important oil-producing areas. If Iran lost land to Iraq, the entire country would collapse.
5: Even though the Iranian side was outgunned, they were able to push Iraq's military back to its borders in two
1: years.
3: <laughs> To those who
1: are sitting in the house of God, standing up against the
2: enemies of God, I will kiss your hands and shoulders because the hands of God are above you. Qasem Soleimani became a revolutionary guard commander and
3: began to build his reputation as a brave warrior. This is the commander who would be talking personally to all men that are under his command before each attack. And we are talking about the war, which most of all resembles World War One. It was trench warfare. You had at least 250,000 Iranians being killed in that war.
4: He wasn't this commander who would sit in a bunker in Tehran and order people around. You know, he, he liked to go out there in war zones and appear to be, you know, man of the people.
3: And here you have one commander, a young man from Kerman, doing reconnaissance missions behind enemy lines to minimize the risk for men under his command. And I'm really emphasizing this because most of the people from Kerman, they were in the same division, and many of them were actually personal friends and sometimes family members of, of, of Mr. Soleimani. On one occasion, uh, Radio Baghdad, which was transmitting uh, programs in Persian language, uh, made Mr. Soleimani a minor celebrity of the war, uh, because on one particular occasion, when Mr. Soleimani was doing a reconnaissance mission, this you know young peasant sees a goat. And he steals the goat, brings the goat back, and prepares kebab, you know, for for, for his men. <laughs> and 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 Radio Baghdad apparently heard of this story and 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 began propagating and the name Behesh Soleimani, Behesh. the goat thief. Adam būye behišta, his <laughs> mīqad. Men vāqan ba tamam-e vujūd-e miyāt-e qādamīne ke jange mām məmblo būd az behiştiani ke behişt musta'pe didare shanbud. Jange.
2: With all my soul and belief,
1: I believe our war was full of those blessed souls who the heavens
2: were
0: ecstatic to meet.
2: Soleimani the goat Thief went on to fight for the entirety of the Iran-Iraq war, with almost no leave, repeatedly committing acts of bravery. By 1988, when the war ended, he was widely considered to be a war hero. He had this
4: charisma which really engendered enormous loyalty and affection and even after the war ended you know he didn't like many revolutionary guardsmen then just enter the private sector and, and try to go off and get rich like his entire life was the revolution and projecting Iranian power
5: At the end of the war, Soleimani was sent back to his home province, Kerman, where he became the chief of the local Revolutionary Guard force.
3: Kerman province is close to the Afghan and Pakistani border, and at the time in the 1990s, many Afghan and Iranian drug cartels were operating in those areas, transporting particularly opium from Afghanistan to Iran and from Iran to the international market. Mr. Soleimani became heavily involved in the fight against uh, the drug cartels. Later, when Iran and Afghanistan, you know, the, the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, were almost on the brink of a war, the Quds Force was looking for a new face, for a new commander, And because Afghanistan was the primary threat to Iran's national security, the regime needed an Afghanistan expert. And Mr. Soleimani was one of those people. So so that was the reason why he became the chief commander of the Quds Force.
2: Qasim Soleimani, in the course of two decades, had gone from a completely unknown construction worker to the head of Iran's most important intelligence military organization. But this was only the first half of his rise, because just three years into his tenure as the head of al-Quds Force, 9-11 happened. He found himself right in the middle of the action, helping shape Iran's response to an incredibly difficult foreign policy challenge. And in the process, he showed a more cynical, deadly face to the world.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. Celebrity chef Samin Nosrat will not do events anymore if she's the only brown person
2: speaking. And often, and I'm like I have at-the-ready list of names. Because yeah. a lot of times the excuse is like, couldn't
3: find oh, anybody. couldn't find one.
2: <laughs> the stories behind the celebrities. Every Tuesday on It's Been a Minute from NPR.
0: Hey, we're back with rough translation from NPR. I'm Gregory Warner. We are airing an episode of Throughline in today's feed. And before we get back to our story, I'm here with one of the hosts of Throughline, Ramtin Arablouei. Uh, many listeners may not know you are Iranian American. Yes, you were born in Iran. Yep, and you were telling me that that's actually part of the reason you wanted to tell this story. Yeah,
2: absolutely. This particular episode was motivated by the fact that there was a moment in 2001 after 9-11 where the U.S. and Iran almost reached some kind of peace agreement or cooperation. And it was when the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. And the enemy of Iran was also the Taliban who were harboring Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. So the two countries cooperated militarily. And And Iran knew a great deal about The Taliban and fighting the Taliban, right? That's exactly right. And so the U.S. didn't have much of an intelligence presence in Afghanistan. So Iran had something the U.S. needed. And the U.S. was about to get rid of Iran's enemy. So they had a mutual interest in that moment. And not to put a point on it, but that could have changed your life, too, I guess, not to be
0: too what could have been.
2: No, it's, it's, I, I think you're right. That's a really good point. Because if the diplomatic relations, that, if they were reinstated between the two countries, it would have been a lot easier for me to go back and forth. And certainly, I would be able to you know, take my young son back there very easily now, which I can't. How close did Iran and the
0: U.S. get to actually working together? Well, it's really hard to tell how close they
2: got to a real, real peace deal, but they did cooperate. So then what what happened? What really killed it? So in early 2002, George W. Bush names Iran as part of the Axis of Evil. An
0: Axis of Evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world.
2: And when that public declaration was made, all of the kind of back-channel negotiations and cooperation that was happening between Iran and the U.S., died down and the two countries just rose again. And that's when those wars go from a
0: potential of cooperation to a chance to make the U.S. uh, involvement as painful
2: as possible. Exactly. The goal was to basically make it so painful that the U.S. leaves the region permanently.
0: Okay. And that's where you pick up the story. Part two, Gospel of Chaos.
5: After Iran fell out with the U.S. and Afghanistan, they caught a break. A strange opportunity presented itself. When the Taliban government collapsed, many members of al-Qaeda fled Afghanistan and crossed the border into Iran. They were quickly arrested and interrogated by Iranian intelligence.
4: And at that time, there was a debate within Iran about whether these Sunni jihadists were a threat to Shiite Iran, or whether they were an asset. You know, there were Bin Laden family members, there was a guy who later went on to become the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Zarqawi, and I think Qasem Soleimani was unique, that was kind of his sinister, sinister genius in thinking, you know what, we can potentially use these folks and Suleimani assigned two Revolutionary Guard commanders to essentially tend to their needs. They were given televisions, they were given money to build a library, their families were taken out on shopping outings. One of the most notorious Al-Qaeda explosives experts, a guy who's still alive, he's, he's still on the run, Saif al-Adil, he had access to this very posh gym in North Tehran in a neighborhood called el where he used to swim laps alongside foreign diplomats. And, you know, the children of Osama bin Laden affectionately called Qasem Suleimani Haji Qasem. They used to break bread together. My friend Siamak was tortured in prison. He was in solitary confinement. And it really angers me to think that hardened jihadis, you know, Al-Qaeda members were treated as guests in Iran, and real patriots who love their country are are treated like criminals and and put into solitary confinement and, and exiled. And I think that history is not going to reflect well on Qasem Soleimani when his biographies are written in the future.
5: Now that Soleimani had these al-Qaeda fighters on his side, he had to figure out exactly how to use them.
4: The way they figure out to do that initially is by taking these al-Qaeda jihadists and simply unleash them into Iraq. With the understanding that you guys go do what you do. Go after the United States car bombings, suicide bombings. And just a few months into the war, August of 2003, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the Jordanian al-Qaeda leader, he sets off these three major bombs, which essentially destroys the American experiment in Iraq in its infancy.
5: One bomb hit the Jordanian embassy. Another hit the United Nations, which reduced their peacekeeping presence there.
4: And lastly, Zarqawi conducted this car bombing against the major Shiite shrine, Imam Ali Mosque in Najaf. This was unheard of at the time, that someone would go set off a car bombing at a mosque during Friday prayers. This totally radicalized the Shiite community in Iraq, and it essentially pushed them into the arms of Iran and Qasem Soleimani, who said to the Shiites of Iraq, we can protect you. You know, there's some slight parallels here with the way the United States fought the Soviet Union in Afghanistan in the 1980s, because the United States also supported these Mujahideen, you know, essentially the jihadists of their day, to go fight uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, obviously not realizing that those folks would be the antecedents of Al-Qaeda. Different
5: conflict, same strategy.
4: And you never understand until years later what is going to be the residual impact of these choices.
2: Soleimani didn't just use Sunni extremists to cause chaos in Iraq. He also used Iran's money and influence to organize militias among his fellow Shiites in southern Iraq.
3: It managed to use the Iraqi Shia militias who should be thankful to the United States military because the U.S. had overthrown Saddam's regime But the Islamic Republic managed to mobilize them against the United States. It served the interests of the Islamic Republic to maintain Iraq in a state of controlled chaos and anarchy so that the United States could not declare itself the winner of of developments in, in, in Iraq.
2: How does Ali or anyone else know this? Well, one Iraqi Shia fighter, while being interrogated by American military intelligence, Explained exactly how he
3: worked with Iran. He would go to Tehran. He would receive bags of money, approximately seven hundred thousand dollars to up to a one million, to form a group of fighters in Iraq. Al
2: Quds Force funded, equipped, and even trained Iraqi Shia militias on how to ambush and attack vulnerable American forces. OK? one of their most effective oh, tactics was teaching Shia fighters how to use IEDs. Uh, improvised explosive devices,
3: here. My
4: which proved to be very effective in getting through you know, metal tanks and maiming and, and killing, injuring U.S. troops.
3: At the very minimum, 600 American servicemen were, were, were killed, you know, in, in those years. U.S. officials
4: hold Soleimani directly responsible for, for conceiving of that. And that's why you have, you know, one if not two generations of American military forces whom if you were to ask them, who is your worst adversary in the world, the person you see as the greatest threat to the United States, and even... When Osama bin Laden was living and Baghdadi was living, they would have still said Qasem Soleimani.
3: Mr Soleimani believed that by imposing heavy losses on the United States military in Iraq, that it was possible to target the psychology of the American society Every single time an American is coming home in a body bag, it would have an impact on willingness and support of the American public to preserve a sizable United States military presence in Iraq. And in some ways it worked.
5: American public support for the war in Iraq waned as the conflict became more costly in lives and money. Slowly, the American presence in Iraq began to shrink. By 2011, the number of American soldiers there was a fraction of what it was just five or six years earlier. Emboldened by their success and fearing the downfall of allies in the Middle East, the Revolutionary Guard, with Gossam Soleimani leading the way, began to make moves beyond Iraq.
2: Part 3, A String of Pearls.
1: At least 20 protesters have been killed during marches in several Syrian cities. It's estimated that up to a million people have taken to the streets to challenge President Bashar al-Assad's rule.
3: Protesters demanded the end of the regime, ripping down a statue of the president's father, bracing to see the reaction of heavily armed government security forces. The answer came quickly and violently. Here they are, members of the elite revolutionary guards on the front lines of Syria's civil war. The Islamic Republic perceives Syria as a bridgehead connecting Western Afghanistan to Iran, to Iraq, Lebanon. Mr. Rafsanjani, the former president, he referred to this as a string of pearls. If one of them collapses, it's going to cause very serious trouble for the rest of the system. And the strategic thinking of Mr. Rafsanjani was shared by the leadership of the Revolutionary Guard. And Bashar al-Assad had to be defended at all costs. At all costs. Not because they liked Bashar al-Assad, They criticized him as a matter of fact, but they believed that collapse of the Bashar regime and emergence of a different type of regime, it would be bad for Iran. So the Islamic Republic began systematically to send first goods force officers, then deployed Lebanese Hezbollah, who did so rather unwillingly, because Hezbollah's raison d'etre is to protect Arabs against Israel, but here they are going to kill fellow Arabs. In Syria. So it was very embarrassing for Hezbollah, but they also felt that they had no choice. This is an Iranian, Iranian Al-Qud
2: soldier serving as an advisor to the Syrian military, talking about the opposition to Bashar al-Assad. He says that it isn't a war between the Syrian people and their government. It's a war between good and evil, between Shias from Lebanon, Afghanistan, Iran, and Iraq, against Israel, Saudi
3: Arabia, and Turkey. This man
2: was likely reporting to Qasem Soleimani, who was tasked with coordinating and organizing the defense of Bashar al-Assad's regime. He did this at a time when Assad's military was using chemical weapons against its own citizens and bombing rebellious Syrian towns indiscriminately, killing combatants and civilians alike. Despite all of this extreme violence, Syrian rebels and citizens were still gaining ground and things were not looking good for Soleimani's military.
3: After a few years, they were uh, suffering so many losses that the Islamic Republic had uh, had to deploy other Shia militia groups in Syria. For example, Shia Afghans from the Fatimian division, different Iraqi militias who were already busy fighting the civil war in Iraq. Some of them were also sent to fight in the civil war in Syria. And at some point, of course, they were so desperate that Major General Soleimani had to travel to Moscow and ask Vladimir Putin for military support because they needed air support. And after that, things began to go very well for the Revolutionary Guard. The Revolutionary Guard commanders, they genuinely believe that Syria was a sensational success story. They won against all odds.
0: While Damascus remains a target for armed groups in the region, local residents are without doubt. Bashar al-Assad
2: has won the war. Of course we won the war, no one can argue with that. And as long as our president is in power, everything will be fine in Syria.
3: The war in Syria not only provided the Revolutionary Guard with an opportunity to achieve military success on the ground, but unfortunately also gave them the opportunity to compromise themselves ethically and morally.
4: The United Nations has found massive evidence pointing to the Syrian government's involvement in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Syrian
3: activists have accused the forces of President Bashar al-Assad of killing hundreds of people in a nerve gas attack.
4: The accusation goes to the highest levels
3: and implicates the President Bashar al-Assad. They are accomplices uh, of of Bashar al-Assad's regime, uh, use of chemical weapons against uh, the, the Syrian population. They're accomplices of the Syrian regime using famine against his own population as a means of controlling them.
5: In 2014, after years of fighting in Syria and Iraq, Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force all of a sudden had a new problem. ISIS. And there's a logical question here. If Iran had been able to work with al-Qaeda, then why couldn't they just support ISIS? Well, al-Qaeda was a little different than ISIS.
4: Al-Qaeda was not out gratuitously beheading Shiites the way that ISIS was doing. For the Iranian regime,
3: ISIS was just beyond the pale. Islamic Republic and the Revolutionary Guard Corps perceived this as a serious threat which could take away all their gains from them.
4: ISIS posed a real threat to Iran's
3: Shiite allies in Iraq. At some point, the Islamic State was, was, was threatening Baghdad. At the
4: same time, I would argue that both Iran and the Assad regime in Syria actually utilized these Sunni jihadists.
3: Presence of such an inhumane enemy, universally condemned as a terrorist organization, it was not such a bad thing from the Iranian side, because the Islamic Republic, which had hitherto. Difficulties explaining and legitimizing its military actions in Iraq and Syria suddenly had a legitimate cause to engage in the fight against terrorism. On those occasions, just as it did before, you know, in 2001 in Afghanistan, the United States and the Islamic Republic cooperated with each other the United States Air Force was providing air cover to the Quds Force operatives and Mr. Soleimani personally so that he could cleanse the city of Tikrit of the Sunni radical elements and Islamic State. At that time, in 2014 and 15, the Quds Force and Mr. Soleimani, both of them, were on the list of uh, designated terrorists of the United States uh, government. So you clearly see strange bedfellows at times of war.
5: And this is the moment when Qasem Soleimani became internationally known. The Revolutionary Guard knew his appeal. His face was put on posters. Camera crews followed him as he visited soldiers in Syria. Music was made about him. And all the way up to his death a few weeks ago, he was successfully marketed.
4: As kind of uh, this... Shiite Che Guevara.
5: This is footage of Qasem Sulaimani speaking to Al-Quds force in Syria. His Arabic is actually pretty good.
3: Oh,
5: wow. And this is a song in Arabic made to honor him.
3: late Major General Soleimani was a man with at least two faces. One face, uh, that is the face of a young man who left his little village to go to the front to defend Iran against the invading Iraqi army in 1980. That very same individual, of course, also had another face. That face is the face of a general who cynically attacked and killed American servicemen in Iraq since 2003, and also, most unfortunately, engaged or was complicit in war crimes in Iraq and also in Syria. These two faces show the complexity of the individual. I respect the first one, the war hero, but of course I condemn the other face which is that of a war criminal
4: and I think I have a somewhat different perspective here than many analysts of Iranian origin because not only did I live in Iran but I also lived in Beirut and I would travel every couple weeks to Damascus for a year and so when I see the destruction of Syria these. Numbers are not just a statistic for me, that 13 million people displaced, you know, 600,000 people killed. I see Qasem Soleimani as being directly complicit in that horrific violence. This is frankly my problem with a lot of Iranians who comment on this because I feel like they totally lack a self-awareness about, you know, they, they only view them in this Iranian context and they don't give a about the role he played elsewhere in the region and I tell people how would you feel as an Iranian to watch millions of Iraqis mourning Saddam Hussein. A lot of people commented about Soleimani was that he was soft-spoken. He wasn't someone who was like uh, this fire-breathing radical. And I'm always reminded of this Persian saying about the clerics, that if you look at the hands of the mullahs of the clerics, their hands are always like perfectly manicured, as if they haven't done any manual labor in their life or, or even known war. They talk a tough game, but they've never served in conflict. And and I always think that's probably one reason why Suleiman was soft-spoken. You know, he didn't need to breathe rhetorical fire because everyone knew he had his elbows deep in blood.
5: That's it for this week's show. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah.
2: I'm Ramteen Arablui.
5: And you've been listening to Throughline from NPR.
2: This episode was produced by me.
5: And me. And...
2: Jamie York. Lawrence Wu.
5: Lane Kaplan-Levinson.
2: Lou Olkowski. Nigeri Eaton.
5: Fact-checking for this episode was done by Kevin Vocal.
2: Thanks also to Anya Grunman, Aida Porassad, and Austin Horn.
5: Our music was composed by Ramteen and his band, Drop Electric.
0: This rebroadcast of the episode was produced by Rough Translation's own Autumn Barnes. Thanks also to Zach Warren and Tom Verner for refreshing my memory of that Iran trip. You can listen to more ThruLine at npr.org slash or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gregory Warner, back next month with more Rough Translation.